Please pray with me. Father, we're grateful for this time that you've given us. Our heart's desire is to honor you, to worship you in spirit and in truth. But we admit, O oh God, and confess that we need your help to hear your word rightly. So we pray, O oh God, that you would help your servant now and that you would help your people now. Give us eyes to behold the beauty and the majesty of the living Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. When we think of the word authority, we usually think of that word in the negative. We think of that word as a skeptic or maybe even a cynic. So, for example, there is this slogan that's on bumper stickers and T-shirts and maybe even hats. And it goes like this as it relates to authority. Rule number one, the boss is always right. Rule number two, if there's any doubt, refer to rule number one. And so we think of this, and we think it's comical, and there's an element of truth to that, but that only applies to human beings. That only applies to humanity. Because if we take that same idea and we apply it to Jesus Christ, it would say this, rule number one, Jesus Christ is always right. Rule number two, if there's any question or doubt, Jesus Christ is always right. Amen? Amen. Jesus is always right, and that's the case for us today. The problem is never Jesus. The problem is always mankind. The problem is always us. Jesus Christ has all authority. He is Lord over all. We're in Luke chapter 6, in the first 11 verses of this chapter, this sermon is entitled, entitled Christ, Lord, and Healer. And the main point that I want to get across today is Jesus exercises his authority through compassion and mercy. Jesus exercises his authority through compassion and mercy. In today's sermon, I'm going to spend the first probably two-thirds of our time in the first five verses, but then in the last five verses, verses 6 through 11, I'll spend a few minutes. So I'm going to spend a majority of our time at the beginning of this text. And it's important to note that we are in a new scene. This is a new event in Jesus' earthly ministry. It happens to be the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the last day of the week for the Old Testament Jew. That happens to be Saturday. If you want to be technical, it is Friday night to Saturday night. It's that 24-hour period of time. And that last day of the week for the Jew is a very religious day. It's a sacred day. It's a day of rest, and it's also a day to worship God as king. But then early on in verse 1, we see a problem. The writer, Luke, states the issue right away. Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field. He's standing in an area, or they're walking through an area where there's cultivated fields of wheat. That's the idea. And as they were walking through, the disciples decide to pluck the heads of wheat, eat the heads of wheat, or take the heads of wheat into their hands and rub them. You know, on a normal day, that's no issue, but there's a problem. The problem is there's Pharisees who have witnessed this event. And from the standpoint of the Pharisees, they think that 
the disciples have violated the law of God. And so the Pharisees posed this question not to Jesus, but they posed this question to the disciples of Jesus, and they're implying guilt to Jesus as well. We know, the under, we know and understand the idea of guilty by association. And so if you remember what Pharisees are, they're religious and political figures. They're influential in society. They have a strong adherence to Old Testament laws and man-made traditions. In other words, they're legalists. They are moral perfectionists. They're all about the law at all costs, no matter what. And so from their point of view, what the disciples of Jesus have done by plucking the wheat and eating the wheat and rubbing the wheat in their hands is a violation of God's law. Well, if we look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, Exodus 20, verse 8, it says this, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. We understand Exodus 20, verse 8, as the fourth commandment, to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. In this context of Sabbath means to cease, to cease from normal work of the week, regular work of the week. It's to cease from that type of labor. Why? Because of verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. The seventh day is the Sabbath day. So God does not need rest like we need rest. The Bible's very clear that God the Father is spirit. He doesn't have a human body like we do. He's not limited by physical human bodies. So God does not need rest like we need rest after an 8, 10, 12-hour workday. But what God has done in Exodus 20, or really in Genesis 1 and 2, is that God has set a model. God has set a pattern. God has set a cycle for work and for rest. In the Old Testament, they are to work six days. They are to rest one day. That's the pattern, work and rest. Back in those days, they would work as an agricultural society, a farming community from sunrise to sunset. Some of you have farming backgrounds or you live out in the wilderness. You understand agricultural societies. You're talking about a 12-hour day, a 14-hour day. If it's a 12-hour day times six days, we're talking about 60 hours of work minimum and then one day rest. That is the work cycle pattern. You know, in America, we want eight hours a day. We want times five days. We want 40 hours a week. 
give us Saturday and Sunday off, preferably. In Las Vegas, that's virtually impossible. And then when we have Christmas and we have Thanksgiving and we have every other holiday under the sun, we are always aiming to do less and less and less work. And yet God has established a pattern of work and rest. So let's not complain anymore, brothers and sisters. We have it really good in America. We really do. But the Lord has set a cycle and a pattern of work and rest. And according to Exodus 20, verse 8, we have a better understanding of where the Pharisees are coming from. They think that these disciples have violated the law of God. They consider all of this activity on the Sabbath as reaping, threshing, winnowing, and preparing food, which is a supposed violation. But in Deuteronomy 23, verse 25, Deuteronomy 23, verse 25, God has provided the original Social Security safety net. There was no government at that time. The government didn't pay to help the people. But this is God's Social Security system in the Old Testament. And it says this, Verse 25 of Deuteronomy 23. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, the wheat fields, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So early on in the Old Testament, God has provided a way for people with legitimate needs, serious needs, to be taken care of. And in this case, we're talking about hunger. Legitimate hunger. A person may eat from the neighbor's field and yard, but they're not allowed to put a sickle. If you understand a sickle, a sickle is a long rod with a metal blade, and what you do with one swipe, you take out lots of wheat. And so what is God saying? If you're hungry, you can eat, but you cannot be lazy and take from your neighbor's hard work. There's a difference between working and legitimate needs and being flat-out lazy. So if we take the Deuteronomy passage and we connect it to Leviticus 19, verse 9 and 10, God also makes a provision in the Old Testament for the poor, those who are financially destitute, those who have no money but yet they're hungry. God provides a way for the sojourner. The sojourner is the alien. We're not talking about Mars alien. We're talking about people who come from a different land to go to a foreign land. We're talking about the immigrant. We're talking about the visitor. And so God has provided in Leviticus 19 verse 9 for the poor and the sojourner to eat as well. They can go, if you remember, they can go to a neighbor's yard and eat as well, but the owner of that field is not to glean. Remember that word, glean? They're not to glean to the very edges. They're to leave the edges for who? The poor. That was God's social security system in the Old Testament to take care of the poor and the sojourner. So God's word allows for people to eat as long as there's a legitimate need from an, uh, another person's yard, from another person's hard work. 
So what do we actually have here? What we have here is a misinterpretation of God's law. And not only do we have a misinterpretation of God's law, we have a misinterpretation on how to apply God's law. So we have a double-edged sword here. In other words, we have legalism to its fullest. And so we see in verses 3 through 5 the solution, or Jesus' response in verses 3 through 5. And let me make this very simple. What we're seeing in these verses is that Jesus has the authority to interpret God's law and to apply God's law. Let me say that again. Jesus, the Messiah, has the authority to interpret God's law and to apply God's law. Verse 3, read with me. It says, And Jesus answered them, talking about the Pharisees, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any, but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Who is Jesus addressing? He's addressing the Pharisees directly. Jesus is not addressing them with his own personal opinion or his emotions or his thoughts. Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees with the very word of God in the Old Testament. We're talking about 1 Samuel 21. 1 Samuel 21, the first six verses of 1 Samuel 21. If you remember in 1 Samuel 15, you have to back up. The king at that time was King Saul. He was on the throne. But the Lord rejected King Saul's kingship and authority. Why? Because King Saul had sinned against the Lord. The Lord clearly commanded King Saul to do what's called a ban. That ban is technically a holy war. A holy war against two. Against the Amalekites. Against the Amalekites. And King Saul was clearly instructed that in this holy war that you are to destroy everyone and everything. Man, woman, and child, every single animal, everything that they own, any personal property, is to be destroyed, and especially the king. Because the king is the representative of that evil kingdom. And so what happens? King Saul, he spares King Agag. He reserves and keeps the best sheep and the best, best oxen and the best calves or the fattened calves. Saul sinned against God clearly. And what does God do? God strips King Saul of his kingship in the very next chapter, 1 Kings chapter 16, because David is now anointed the new king. And so King Saul hears about this. King Saul is now very jealous and now he tries to kill King David multiple times. So this is the background of what Jesus is saying in Luke chapter 6. Because if you don't understand what's happening in 1 Samuel, those first chapters, before we get to chapter 21 of 1 Samuel, 
then what Jesus is arguing for in Luke 6 makes no sense. So that's the background. So David is now running for his life, him and his small group of men. They are tired, they're worn out, and they're especially hungry. And so King David goes to the temple, which is the house of God. He goes to the sanctuary, which is the house of God. They have a legitimate need. They are hungry. And so Jesus challenges the Pharisees' authority in Luke 6 and says, Have you not read the Bible? Have you not read the Old Testament, especially 1 Samuel? You are religious people. The scribes are experts of the Old Testament law. Do you not understand what happened in 1 Samuel chapter 21? Because at that time, when David and his men were hungry, and they went into the temple, they ran into the high priest. The high priest at that time was Ahimelech. Ahimelech. David asked Ahimelech, Is there any bread? Me and my men are hungry. And Ahimelech says, we have no common bread. We have no regular bread to give to you. But we do have holy bread. But this holy bread is for those who are ritually clean. And in 1 Samuel 21, Ahimelech asked David a very specific question. He says, David, are you and your men ritually clean? In other words, he says in that text, have you and your men stayed sexually pure? Because if you have been sleeping around, you are not ritually clean, you're not ritually pure, and if you're not ritually clean and pure, you cannot partake of the holy bread. That's the idea there. And so David says to Ahimelech, says, yes, we have kept away from all women. We are ritually clean. And so Ahimelech gives David and his men this holy bread, and they eat it. Now, this holy bread, it's important to understand what's happening here. This holy bread is not the bread that is in, per se, the holy place of the temple. The priests of that time were responsible to bake brand new loaves of bread every week and place it on this holy table in the holy place of the temple. And so what happens is you put fresh bread on, 12 loaves to represent 12 tribes, and then a week later when you put that fresh 12 loaves on the table, you take off what? Old 12 loaves of bread. The old bread, that one week old bread, was to be given to the priestly line. And in this case, you're to give this one-week-old bread to Aaron and his descendants, those who are of the priestly line. That's the bread that is talked about here that David and his men actually ate. This is known as the bread of the presence or show bread. In other words, this was sacred bread for a priestly line. But according to the Pharisees, they think that they violated the law of God. Now, on the face of the situation, Jesus does say in Luke chapter 6 that they ate something, right? They ate the bread, which they were not supposed to do. So on the face of this, this does look like a violation. However, the way that Jesus is arguing, the way that he's arguing is that there's a greater need. 
There's a greater need. There's a legitimate need when, in this case, hunger. And when there's a greater need, it's permissible. When there's a greater need, it's permissible. So 1 Samuel 21, what Jesus is actually doing is he's, in Luke 6, he's taking the 1 Samuel 21 chapter and he's making a comparison. What is Jesus actually saying? Jesus is saying, in the Old Testament, you understand that David went into the temple with his men. They had a legitimate need, which was hunger. And they ate the bread of the presence. They ate the showbread. If you want to be technical, again, it's seven days, one week old bread. Because why? There's a need. And now my men, me and my disciples, have a legitimate need. In other words, if David and their men can eat this bread, so can I. And my disciples eat this bread. In other words, if you understand who David is, you would understand who I am. I come from the line of David. I am the son of David, yet I am David's Lord. In other words, I am the greater David. Jesus is greater than David, and I am he, and I am here. So Jesus has the authority to interpret the law and to apply the law. And what we need to understand here, and we need to be clear here, we're not talking about political law. We're not talking about the moral law, the Ten Commandments. We're not talking about the civil law. The law that we're referring to here is ceremonial law. Anytime you read priests, priestly duties in a temple, you're referring to, we are referring to ceremonial law. That's the law that was violated. So what can we learn from this in these first couple of verses? That all that the Pharisees can see with their eye is law, law, and more law. They have zero sympathy. They have zero empathy. They have zero compassion. They have zero mercy. They want to look good in front of people. They want to be right in upright standing position with God and men. However, they misunderstood how to apply the Sabbath. They misunderstand how to apply God's word and law. Jesus is saying if you're actually trying to honor God, then you would have a true desire to be compassionate towards the needs of others. That's the idea there. You would have a compassion for the legitimate needs of others. And then in verse 5, Jesus asserts his authority. Read with me. And he, referring to Jesus, said to them, the Pharisees, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. When we read of the Son of Man, that is language from Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, there is a human being that's being described who is going to be ushered into the presence of God in heaven, riding on a cloud. Who does that sound like? That's Acts chapter 1. Does that not sound like Jesus? 
when the angel told the disciples, why are you look up into heaven? For the way that he departed, he shall return on a cloud. And so this person is ushered into God's presence on a cloud, and this person is also given universal, eternal authority. This person rules and reigns over the kingdoms of the earth as the exalted Messiah. Who does that sound like? Doesn't that sound like Matthew 28? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on what? Earth. It doesn't say Jesus will have authority. All authority has been given to him. He is the exalted Messiah. He's the exalted Christ. He's the exalted Savior. Why? Because he lives. He's alive and well. So Jesus has all authority, and he is the Lord of the Sabbath. So Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus has all rule and authority over all the kingdoms. He has the authority to interpret the law and to apply the law because Jesus is the Christ. So what is Jesus implying here? That the Sabbath day is a real day. It's a day of rest. There's work and there's rest. Physical rest. It's also a day to worship God as king. Jesus does not deny that at all. But the Sabbath is also a good day to do good works. The Sabbath is a good day to bless others who are in need. Legitimate needs. We're talking about Saturday. So Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. And Jesus shows his authority through his mercy. Jesus is merciful to those in need. You know, it's a grave error for us to think that our personal good deeds and good works to help us or to help other people is a way that we're forgiven by God. No. We're never forgiven by our own personal good deeds and our personal good works. We need to always be reminded as much as possible that God has forgiven us because of Christ, his son. And we believe unto Christ for salvation. Jesus is the one who has earned and merited our salvation. Who else can obey the law of God perfectly outside of Jesus? No one. Only Jesus. So God forgives sinners when they repent of their sins and trust in the Lord. Don't think it's because of our good works. It's because of Jesus' perfect work on our behalf. The basis of our forgiveness is in Christ. In Christ, by faith in him. Why does Jesus say he's the Lord of the Sabbath? Because it's true. But also in the parallel account, Matthew's account of the gospel, we see another side to this text. Matthew's gospel, Matthew 12, to be exact. Matthew, Matthew 12, verse 5. Jesus says this, Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath 
and are guiltless. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus says to the Pharisees that the priests, they profane the Sabbath. How do they profane the Sabbath? The priests profane the Sabbath in this way, that on the Sabbath, the priests are not able to physically rest. Why? Because they're serving the people of God. They're serving God in ministry with all these sacrifices. And yet, even though they're considered to profane the Sabbath, they are at the same time guiltless. Why? Because they're honoring the Lord in their service to God by serving the people. They cannot physically rest. They're working hard in the temple to serve God's people. Therefore, they're guiltless. And Jesus said, something, actually someone greater than the temple is here. The greater temple is Christ. The temple in the Old Testament is a place, a physical place, where God would meet his people. That the holy God of the entire universe would meet with sinful mankind. But it was through a mediator, the high priest, that would bring a sacrifice. God's presence in the temple made the temple holy. A temple is not holy if God is not there. The temple is holy because God's presence is there. And likewise, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 1 that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. The physical Old Testament temple or tabernacle is a symbol of something greater. Jesus the Christ is the greater temple. Jesus is the one who's the greater temple. The Lord of the Sabbath says, isn't this interesting? In Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 12, the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus himself says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You Pharisees would not have condemned, condemned the guiltless, those who are working hard in the temple to serve others. In this parallel account of Matthew 12, this is the first time we hear about mercy. First time we hear about mercy. Mercy is extreme kindness and concern for the sake of others. It's compassion for those who are in serious need. Mercy is not about obeying repressive laws at the expense of neglecting the needs of others who are in legitimate need. That's not mercy. Mercy is being kind to those who are in need. And Jesus proves that he is the Christ by his authority being merciful to others. Jesus is compassionate. Jesus is compassionate to those who are hungry. Physical needs. But much more than that, the physical need the spiritual side. The spiritual side is more important, 
even though there's a real need on the physical side. Luke 5.31 says this, and we've heard this before. Jesus says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. God in Christ calls those who are spiritually sick, destitute, spiritually bankrupt and broke to come to Christ in repentance. And what Jesus is saying is this. Sinners, repent. And if you repent and you trust in Christ, you're a Christian. The question now becomes, are you merciful to others? Are you merciful to others? Are you kind to others who are in legitimate need? Let me say this, and I'm stating the obvious. It applies to you and it applies to me. In our born-again hearts, in our regenerated hearts, there's a small little Pharisee that's in each and every one of us. You're laughing, but it's true. When somebody comes to us in need, in our cynical ways, we say, be merry, eat and drink, but depart from me, you workers of iniquity. When do we say as Christians, this brother, this sister is in need, and we say to them, come to my house and eat. Let me give you medicine. Let me take care of your wounds. Let me help you in your family and in your marriage. When do we become merciful? I know we are merciful because God has been merciful to us. But the reason that we're not merciful to others 24-7 is because a majority of the time we forget that God has been merciful to me and to you and to us. That's why we're not merciful to others. We want to stand over people and say, I'm a Pharisee, bow down to me. Beg and grovel, plead with me, and then when I believe you, I'm going to help you. That's not right, brothers and sisters. How do we apply this text? One practical way to apply this text is we know that every Sunday, I'm sorry, the first Sunday of every month is the Lord's Supper. We take an extra offering. We have a general offering that, take care, that takes care of the general needs, but we have one extra offering, the Benevolence Fund. And we say this once and we say it a thousand times. Those who give to that benevolence fund, 100% goes to the physical needs of this church family. That's one way to practically apply this text. When those Sundays come, we should be praying, asking God, Lord, this is your money. What would you have me to give to bless my brother and sister in Christ? I hope we understand that. I hope we don't get into the mindset is God owns 10% and I own 90%. No, God owns 100%. We own 0%. We are simply managers and stewards of what God has given to us. But yet in our pharisaical mindsets, we own 
90%. Here's another way to practically apply this text. As you may be aware of, we have what's called a deacon's closet where we stock frozen foods and canned goods for the physical needs of this family, especially those who are hungry. Ask the Lord what he would have you to give. If you've got extra food in your pantry, give it. Give it to the church so that we can bless others who are hungry and in need. You should talk to the deacons about that. But we need to be people who are merciful. We need to start thinking of others more important than ourselves. God has blessed us. Should we not bless others? Now, there's some of us who think that, Pastor Rolo, I agree with you, but I have my own ideas. I would like to start this mercy ministry or this ministry or that ministry. Praise the Lord that the Lord's given you a desire to do that. Do you see how I phrase that? Praise God that the Lord has given you a desire to do that. I didn't put it on the pastors. I'm not putting that responsibility on the pastor. The pastor's job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. We are a small church with small resources, with a small group of pastors, and this church is growing by God's grace. That's a nice problem to have. But we are nearly maxed out with all our counseling, with all our meetings, with all our discipleship, with all our preaching and teaching and prep time, and meeting people of the community, and meeting with you in your homes. So if the Lord has given you that desire, and you think, Pastor Rolla would be great at leading this ministry, or Pastor Ed, or Pastor Corey, or Pastor Valermir would be great at leading this ministry, I want to encourage you to reconsider your position. You would be great to lead that ministry. Why? Because the Lord didn't give me that desire. The Lord's given you that desire. Obviously, you want to pass that by the pastors first to make sure it's legit. It's biblical. It's honoring to Christ. But our job as pastors is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. But we're hoping that the church would get to a point that as a body of believers that we get to a point of what's called congregational care. That when there's a need, that the membership, the congregation steps in and takes care of that need. One of the greatest joys in my life as a pastor is that when this brother takes care of this brother and I find out about it 15 to 30 days later. They're not trying to call me to take care of every single need or take care, you know, call the pastors, hey, can you take care of this? You live 100 feet away. Why can't you take care of it? But there's a gospel connection here that we need to tell others about in this text. The sacred bread that's in the temple, the show bread or the bread of the presence, fed the physical needs for a day. But the next day, people get hungry all over again. We need to point people to what's missing in their lives. And in 1 Samuel 21, when David requested, and you're, you're going to have to read this with your own eyes because I don't want you to take my word for it, but in 1 Samuel 21, David asked 
do you have five loaves of bread? Or any bread at all? That same language of five loaves of bread is in Matthew chapter 14. Jesus says to, they said to Jesus, we have only five loaves here and two fish. You remember? The disciples say, Jesus, it's been a long day of ministry. I'm tired. I'm sure you're tired. The people are tired. Send them home. So why? So we could eat by ourselves. And Jesus says, no, we're not going to do that. Actually, why don't you provide food for them? Disciple. And the disciple says, well, we only have five loaves and two fish. And Jesus says, bring those five loaves and two fish to me. Then he ordered all of them to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven, broke bread, meaning he prayed, asked the Lord to bless this. And he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And if you remember that text, there was 5,000 men, not including the the women and the children. You're talking about potentially a crowd of 15,000 people that were fed in one day. No government can do that. The United Nations can't do that. Even the Southern Baptist Disaster Relief semi-trailer can't do that. Jesus does that. And he does it perfectly. And so this great crowd was fed. Why? Because Jesus, if you read the text, had compassion. Compassion. Compassion on the needy. And he healed the sick on top of that. Are we compassionate towards others? Because when the people ate, they were satisfied. But then the next day happens. They're hungry all over again. So, are we compassionate to them? Are we compassionate to other people? You know, when we have a bad meal, we tell everybody, right? Don't go to this restaurant. Or this waiter was really mean to me. But when we go to a good restaurant and we eat good food, and you know how it is, right? The siesta, you lean back in your chair and your stomach is distended. And I call it the Filipino paralysis. Your eyes start to close, right? Your breathing is really shallow and you're about to pass out, right? But when the food is that good and you're about to pass out, don't you tell everybody on social media? Like, you got to try the pizza at this place. You got to try the Mugu Gai Pan at this place. But we need to tell people about Jesus. Let's not tell people about physical food and miss the living bread. Let's tell everybody about the living bread. Because in John 6 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is the living bread. If you're in Christ, we are, mo- we are people most satisfied in him. We are spiritually satisfied. We're satisfied in Christ. We should be satisfied with Christ and in Christ. Is that us? Is that you? See, if you let the little Pharisee in, our, in your heart, in my heart, start to grow and start to talk and start to have dominion over your life, you will never be compassionate. You will never be 
merciful. You will never be satisfied in Christ. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Kill sin by God's grace, by the Word of God, by the aid of the Holy Spirit. Now I want to address quickly verses 6 through 11, because this is important, because Jesus performs another miracle. So in the first five verses, Jesus has the authority to interpret the law and to apply the law. Now, in these last verses, Jesus has the authority to heal. To heal. And he performs a miracle of healing on another Sabbath. Jesus walks into a town. He walks into a synagogue. That's his normal uh, mode of operation. He starts to teach. That's what Jesus does. He talks about the gospel. And then Jesus sees a man with a withered right hand. It's interesting that Luke would write this because if you know anything about Luke, Luke is a physician. If you know anything about doctors, they're very technical. They love to write down all the details, which is good. So Jesus sees a man with a hand, specifically a right hand that is withered. And then we see here that this hand is immobilized or paralyzed, or physically shrunken. It's just abnormal. It's asymmetric to the other hand. It just doesn't look right. And then the question becomes, will Jesus heal on the Sabbath in public? That's the question. And then according to Jewish tradition, this is frowned upon only in the case it's acceptable if there's a life and death situation. In other words, a miracle is good and right on the Sabbath if someone's life is hanging in the balance. But if it's dealing with a hand, we're not dealing with life and death. So you shouldn't do this miracle on the Sabbath. That's the idea and context. But this is not the case in this text regarding what Jesus is about to do. The Pharisees and the scribes, they're carefully watching Jesus. I would argue that they're actually spying on Jesus out the corner of their eyes. They're in a synagogue. A synagogue has lots of people. If you know anything about synagogues, if this was a synagogue, a Jewish place of worship, you would have benches lined up in the back. Benches lined up in the back. And then the center would be open. And Jesus understands what they are doing. They're trying to find a reason to accuse Jesus of sin. Violating God's law, better yet, violating man's law. And then we can accuse him, have him arrested, crucified, and killed. That's their goal. They hate who Jesus is. They hate what Jesus has done, which is miracles, to help and bless other people. And they want Jesus out of there. But Jesus knows their inner thoughts, as the text says. Jesus knows the evil intentions of their own heart. And Jesus commands this man with an immobilized hand, a withered hand, a shriveled up hand. He says, come and stand here. Come and stand here means stand in the front, stand in the center. What Jesus is doing is that no one can deny what I'm about to do. You are inches, maybe feet away from seeing this man's paralyzed hand. You're about to see something miraculous. And so Jesus says, come and stand here. And the man obeys. And Jesus says to all in general, 
but specifically to the Pharisees, he asks this question. He puts this rhetorical question to their conscience. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? What's interesting about this event here is this man with the withered hand never approached Jesus. He never asked Jesus for help. He's not looking for his hand to be healed. He's not asking to be forgiven and go to heaven. He's not asking any of that. But Jesus knows what's going on, and what Jesus is doing is he's provoking the legalism of the Pharisees. He says, man, stand right here, front and center. And Jesus is about to heal. And he asks this question, this provoking question, thought-provoking question. And what's being implied here is this. Is it good to bless others on the Sabbath? Is it good and wise to heal on a Saturday? Is it good and right? Because to do nothing at all is equal to doing harm. That's the idea here. If we see a man in need or a person in need and we don't bless them, help them, serve them, that's equivalent to be morally wrong, which means to do harm. To do good on the Sabbath is to save them in the sense of blessing them physically, helping them physically. But to do nothing at all to bless and help others is to destroy life. That's what's being implied here. And so Jesus poses the question. Jesus looks around. Nobody answers. Everybody's afraid, maybe, to answer. And Jesus is grieved with no one answering, if you look at Mark chapter 3, verse 5. And Jesus says to the man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand. Stretch out your hand. What's interesting about what Jesus is doing here, he doesn't go over and touch the man. Because if he did, that would be considered work. He doesn't wave his hands and say, be healed. Because why? They could accuse him of working. Jesus simply says the word, stretch out your hand. The man obeyed and the man's hand was fully restored. Can you imagine a hand that's deformed, asymmetrical, shriveled up, dried up, as the King James says, and it just starts growing fingers? And it starts to balloon and inflate, and it works normally like the day they were born. How does that happen? It's because God is at work in Christ. That's how that happens. He's fully completely restored. This is an amazing miracle. And only God in Christ can do that. The man did not perform any good works. He didn't say, Lord, please help me, please heal me. Jesus healed him in spite of this man's reputation. God was gracious to this man. That's how grace works. That's how grace works. Grace comes to people. If you're working your way up to heaven, that's not grace. You're getting your wage. That's your personal work. That's your personal paycheck spiritually. 
Grace is unmerited favor. So Jesus did not give the Pharisees any evidence to accuse him of sin. There's no violation. Jesus simply says the word and the man is healed. So when we think about biblical miracles compared to modern day healers and miracles, you should, we should compare the two. Because there's a lot of shysters on TBN right now. Jesus didn't hold back. And neither should we. When God heals, God heals. And it's complete healing. When we look at verse 11, how did the Pharisees respond to God's grace to this man in Christ? A man whose hand is fully restored, fully operational, no longer paralyzed. They were filled with fury. Complete and total anger and disdain for Christ. What did Christ do? Christ healed a man. He blessed a man in need. And now they simply want to kill Jesus. There's no rejoicing here at all from the Pharisees. No rejoicing at all. Jesus says, when the world hates you, remember, they first hated me. The word of God says, that those who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Brothers and sisters, let's not be fooled to thinking that when we live for Christ, everything is going to be honky-dory. It's a bed of roses. Everything, is li- everything in life is perfect. That's not the case many times. So Jesus, in his public confrontation of the Pharisees, he rebukes them and their heart Hard of hardness, or heart of hardness, by healing this man with the withered hand. This is mercy. This is mercy. As I close here, I think this is important to understand. There's a story in the days of Napoleon. Napoleon. There was a mother who had a son, and the son committed a grievous crime against Napoleon. And the mother begged the emperor, he says, please have mercy upon my son. And Napoleon responded, well, your son committed this grave offense, not once, but twice. He deserves justice. That's what he deserves. But the mother says, I don't ask for justice. I'm not asking you for justice. I plead for your mercy. And Napoleon says, but your son doesn't deserve mercy. He deserves justice. And the woman says this, crying. It would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I ask for. The emperor Napoleon says, well then, I will have mercy. And this son was spared from death. What do we learn from today's text? We learn this, that Jesus is the true temple. We learn that Jesus is the bread of life and we need to tell others. That Jesus is the Christ, the Old Testament promised Messiah. And that Jesus desires mercy upon those who are in serious, legitimate need. 
This is more important than following man-made laws and traditions that neglect our responsibility to care for other image bearers, those who are made in the image of God. This is more important than following dead, empty laws made by man. Mercy and compassion does not make a Christian. Mercy and compassion does not make a Christian. But if a person is a Christian by God's grace, through faith in Christ, then the mark of a Christian is to exhibit compassion and mercy. True faith produces mercy and compassion for others. That's a fact. Others need to hear about the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. We understand that. At the same time, God has a special care, a special concern for the poor, the broken, the destitute, the childless, the orphan, the widow, the uneducated, those who are culturally ostracized, those who are addicted to alcohol and drugs. There's all sorts of needs and brokenness in the world we live in. But we need to be people who are gospel-centered, Christ-centered, God-glorifying. There are people who have physical needs, and there are people who have a greater need. They need Christ. We should not be people who talk about physical needs at the expense of the gospel. At the same time, we should not be people who only talk about the gospel and we see a serious need and we neglect it when we have the ability to help them. We should not use today's message as an excuse. Well, Lord, my ministry, my personal ministry is more important than coming to the Lord's house on the Lord's day to worship the Lord. Please don't do that. Hebrews 10, 23, 24, 25 is talking about spur each other, each other on in good works and good deeds. How? By assembling yourselves together. Do not forsake the assembly of the saints as some have the habit of doing. We are to come together on the Lord's day to worship the Lord as king. So, sermon in a sentence. God has been and continues to be compassionate and merciful towards us in and through Jesus Christ. Therefore, we must be compassionate and merciful towards others for God's glory. Let's pray. Father, we've heard a hard word today from your word. We admit that we are more pharisaical than we should. Oh God, spare us from vanity and pride and legalism. Lord, soften our hearts by your spirit and by your word. Remind us daily, oh God, that you've been so compassionate and merciful to us in Christ. Help us, therefore, to be merciful and compassionate to others, especially to those who are in legitimate, serious need. And forgive us, Lord, where we fail you and sin against you, O God. But we claim Christ as our Lord and King. Help us now to live for you. For the glory of your name we pray. Amen.